Accomplishment Coaching is proud to present the following fine programming. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. AccomplishmentCoaching.com. Welcome to The Coaching Show with your host, Master Certified Coach, Christopher McCollum. I almost drank your coffee. Uh, good morning and welcome to another uh, exciting episode, but really a new year, a new decade. Everything is new, uh, including our, our guest is a first-timer today. I'm very excited. Um, uh, my name is Christopher McAuliffe, Master Certified Coach. Thank you for joining us, whether you're in the video or uh, joining us in the audio version of the podcast. In the studio today with me is Alex Terranova. You've become sort of a regular around here. I, I mean, I, there's a cot outside that I sleep on, so... <laughs> that you know, uh, violates our lease. You know, again, until you ask me to leave, I will continue to show up. I mean... I'm just the co-host now. You are. I don't know what that means. I see. You're, t you're after it means my chair. I'm coming for your chair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. for sure. Uh, Alex is uh, a coach in his own right. He, you can find him at thedreammason.com. Thedreammason.com. Five, Five years now. Congratulations. I feel like that's a big deal. You also are the host of your own podcast, brilliantly called The Dream Mason Podcast. What else do you want the people to know? Uh, I wrote a book last year called Fictional Authenticity, which uh, you can see in the video. Um, I'm... Like it's a real of, thing. It's a real thing. Everyone always says it's a real book. Yeah. I think they always expect it's going to be like a little pamphlet or something. People like that 20, know you. Like 20 pages. And they're like, oh, my God, this is like a real book. And I'm like, yeah, it's a book. I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm working on an awesome documentary where I'm like traveling around right now and interviewing incredible people about like chakras and energy and documentary spiritual film. centers. Yeah. Um, wow. We were just in uh, like a real film. Yeah, like between Christmas and New and and New Year's Thanksgiving, I was in Joshua Tree, and we worked with some people here in San Diego. Um, the cool thing is, I'm like me, I'm making new friends of all, like from the podcast, the book, the documentary. I'm like all of a sudden I'm hanging out with people that I never would have hung out with. So, including today's guest, yes, yeah. somebody that you had followed and uh, introduced us to. Yeah. Um, okay, it's a new year. I know that for me, my, this year seems is shaping up to be a talking year. I'm giving a lot of talks. I'm going to be speaking at the EMCC in Paris, France this year, uh, Chicago, Orange County, a bunch of different um, uh, speaking gigs. What's, what's this going to be a year for you? You writing another Well, book? first, I would say that we should do an episode on how you're creating speaking gigs because yes. there's a lot of people out there, myself included, that want to be speaking more and right. are like, how do I do this? And you're doing it, so yeah, it would be informative. And well, great. yeah, and we know people who do who do it better than I. Uh, <laughs> very good. Uh, this year, um, so every year I create like an intention or a theme or a breakthrough for the year, but I don't like choose it like from my mind. I meditate. I was at the Self Realization Center uh, right after, like before New. Year. I think it was like the day before New Year's, and I got mm, quiet. You dropped something. Yeah. I got quiet the in there, and uh, and I just asked for it. And the thing that came to me was, I am the golden ticket. This is is my year of of really having access to all of myself and having access to like everything that I want because I say I want it. People talk about the golden ticket. It's a reference to uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka and the mm -hmm. Chocolate Factory. Do you remember what happened to the kids who got the golden ticket? So <laughs> some of those kids, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, but you know what somebody said to me the other day was, you remember like in the movie, Charlie doesn't get the golden ticket from his grandfather, and they're all disappointed. They spend their last money, the last bit of money, and then Charlie finds a a dime yeah, or a nickel, right. whatever. And even though they've already announced the winner, he still buys it because of like passion and faith, and does what he's committed to, like regardless of the result not being available or available, and he gets it anyway. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't, when I, when I 
got that, I like really think it's like a download. Like I didn't sit, like why would I be sitting there in Pramaganda Yoganda Center going, I'm the golden ticket. When I started to think about it, I was like, oh my God, this would be a breakthrough if I showed up for myself like that. Mm. Nice. I Just feel don't... like you're proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of proud of you. And I'm also a little bit, you know, wanting to call you Veruca, but we'll, we can talk about that more. Uh, let's get to our guests. Anything else that we need to promote, tell people about or anything? Um, it's not yet conference season. Uh, the ACTO conference this year, if you're in the coach training business, is going to be a big deal. And there's also a call for presenters now. So if you want to speak, that's an opportunity. The ACTO uh, Association of Coach Training Organizations, ACTO Online, you can go dot um, com, I think. Could be dot org. I think it's dot org. Um, we'll get it up and it'll be in the show notes. Thank you. Anything else we need to talk about? No, let's get to it. Our, um, <clears throat> pardon me, our show today, our guest is an extraordinary way to start not only the year, but the decade. Uh, he's a PhD, a D. Jaffe, uh, you can find him on Adi Jaffe, that's A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E.com, or you can go to ignited.com, but you have to spell it a certain way, and we'll talk more about that. He's here to talk about, and forgive me, a trigger warning, there's a bad word here, the title of this episode is Fuck Shame. Now, you've been following Adi for a while, right? Yeah, I don't know how, like, I don't know how I stumbled upon, you know, him, his podcast, his wife is an entrepreneur and, and has her own thing going on. And, you know, honestly, I told you, and I say this in the most loving way, I was like, I hate these people. Yeah. They're, they're like living, and I don't know what's going on, right? But I'm like, they're living the dream life. Like, they're models, their kids are models, they're in love, they're smart, they're intelligent, they're conscious. Um they both just seem like incredible humans raising incredible kids, making a difference. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to to actually have a conversation and see if that's the truth. <laughs> well, he's an he's an author. He now writes a blog on Psychology Today. Has his own podcast uh, and and more. We'll find out all about him. Please welcome to our microphone for the first time, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Hello. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Look around outside. Where do you Where are you today? I'm in LA. Uh, I live in a a neighborhood nobody's ever heard of, and I'm going to keep that um, <laughs> secret yeah. on this podcast. But I live in something that looks like you came out of 1950. So my home office is now outside the garage for three years ago. <laughs> I was working out of the garage. And now, like you guys, I'm in an actual room. So my, my windows are overlooking blue skies and palm trees and a beautiful street. It's okay. A lot of people have heard about Pacoima. It's okay. Uh, I want to uh, point, point out that for our USC fans, uh, Dr. Jaffe has his PhD from UCLA. Um, I'm right. a Bruin. Let's talk about shame. Uh, what, yeah, let's what, talk about it. What, uh, first of all, we know we, we can surmise why uh, Alex might have been looking around online about shame, but what's the, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things I tell my clients is, you know, consider that shame or and guilt may be useless emotions. In other words, there's there's nothing valuable there, but it certainly is something that's ubiquitous. We all experience it. What what interested you in it? No doubt. So um, first of all, the fuck shame motto actually came out of my TED talk where there was a lot of internal struggle about whether or not I was going to say that phrase. I remember I came to the organizer before the talk and um, instead I'm thinking of using these two words would you be okay with that? There's a lot of oversight when you step on that stage. And so he said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to say on stage, say whatever you want to. And, and there's this moment, if anybody watches my TED talk where I pause for a split second before I say that. And what's interesting about it is 
that is the experience of shame, right? What was it that potentially would hold me back from saying that phrase is how would that reflect upon me through the thousand people that were watching it in the moment? Adi, but then, Adi, you know, can I ask you to hold just a moment? We've got some yeah. technical issue and I don't know what it is, but Adam's working on it. Adam, can you take this and go back to where we were or when we start again? Sure. Um, Adam, is my no, audio skipping? No, no, yours no, is fine. You can, and we can't hear it. It's just on our end. It sounds like crazy static. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. Adam, are you listening? Uh, D. Thank you. Okay. Um, or to you, Dr. Jaffe. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go back to the start of the of the whole piece. Are you okay, Doctor Jaffe? You okay? Can oh, you yeah, yeah, I'm great. Okay, good. Yeah, are you ready, Adam? Great. Let's start again. So the so what is this notion of shame? What interested you in it, and why are we fucking it? <laughs> uh, you know, that's funny, right? That phrase "fuck shame," which is not something I thought I'd be known for, came out of my TED talk. Mm. Um, the idea to use it came to me about two hours before I gave the talk. I had to wow. ask the, the person organizing the, the TED event if they would be okay with it because uh -huh. it felt really weird. I actually literally Googled online, do people swear during a TED talk? <laughs> uh, and, and the answer is pretty much no. Yeah. The answer is a, a, supposed a pretty to be broad, professional, you know, yeah. It should have tipped me off, I know. So there's this moment in my talk where you can see me doing a split-second consideration of whether I should use the words. And that, to me, was actually the indication that I should. Because the only thing that was keeping me back was what were the people in the audience think? Nice. There were like a thousand people there. And then what will people later, almost 600,000 people have watched this talk. What, what are they going to think about it? And, um, and I realized I have to say it. And the reason for me came out of, you know, you mentioned that shame is, is a relatively useless emotion, but mm -hmm. it's ubiquitous. And shame um, is, is an emotion of being ostracized, right? It's an emotion of being a part of uh, and apart from, and it's it's this uh, it's this inner conflict that we have all the time about whether who I am, not what I do, but whether who I am as a person is well perceived, good enough, um, yeah. liked, and appreciated by the people around me, and it gets down to really core values. And as somebody who struggled, we'll talk about this more, but somebody who struggled with. Um, of various range of addictions, you know, uh, you guys were talking about how amazing my life is now. And by the way, it really is that amazing. <laughs> um, but it took a lot of work to get here. And part of that work was about eliminating the internal critical voice that I've had since I was, I remember it since the age of seven or eight. Yeah. But um, that voice is all about shame. That voice is all about who I am is not good. And therefore, right, the, the implications then are that I just have to pretend. I have to create a different persona that I have to live as, and I cannot let anybody see through the armor. I can't let anybody see behind the mask or through the costume, because if they do, they're going to find out the real me. The real me is not likable, and everybody's going to hate me and leave me. Right. And that's been a battle that I fought for, I would argue, my first 25 to 30 years of life. And as I started coming out of that, I realized the power of eliminating shame from our internal experience and that is pretty much my uh my freak flag now is fuck shame <laughs> i love the the connection between shame making it so you can't be authentic yeah yeah uh 
And the story that you said about how you told it, my, my next book is called Fuck Happiness. And I have the exact same experience when people go, hey, what's your next book called? Then I pause. And I have this oh, yeah. whole dialogue, which is a version of shame and inauthenticity. Yep. And and that's, I mean, these are not, this is not, they're just letters. Well, yeah. I think that uh, I want to go back to shame because shame, I think child development theory would indicate that shame starts before seven or eight, right? It's sort of uh, intrinsic in the area of potty training and some other things, right? It's pretty, mm. pretty seminal as humans develop to develop this notion of shame. So I'm intrigued by the notion that you said, Dr. Jaffe, about our ability to just completely free ourselves from it. Did I get that right? Well, you know, we all have goals, right? I don't know that I've completely freed myself of it, but mm -hmm. the, here, here's what I say to a lot of my clients. We were all told that there's a golden standard and that if you live up to that standard, if you look a certain way, talk a certain way, behave a certain yeah. way, have a certain job, drive a certain car, wear certain clothes, you'll reach ultimate happiness. You will live as the perfect human. And so that becomes our, our goal, right? The goal is to attain that standard. What I realized is that it, that's actually the exact opposite of the true goal. The true goal is not to live up to an external standard, but rather to identify the internal standards that are already within you and get as close to living by them. Um, and so it's not that you will ever rid yourself of shame. I have micro shame experiences on a daily basis. The difference is I have conversations like this about them mm -hmm. instead of hiding them and instead of trying to cover them up. Um, shame can be dealt with incredibly quickly. The moment you own up to it, actually, if I can, if I can tell a quick story, I went through this yesterday with my own child. So I have three kids now. Um, my eldest one, the three of us, well, not three of us, we're a tribe now. It's me, my wife, one of our friends, and three kids. We're walking in this idyllic neighborhood that I live in. And we were walking back home and somebody had asked my middle child about how his school day was. And my oldest kid interrupted with the story that a bunch of kids had walked up to him that day and complained that Leo, my middle child, who's a troublemaker, um, had bullied them. So how's school going? Oh my God, these kids walked up to me today and told me that Leo was bullying them. So we started inquiring as to what happened and I asked, Kai, the kid who was telling us the story, some questions. And it turned out within a 30-foot walk that he actually fibbed. There weren't a bunch of kids. There was one kid <laughs> that said, hey, Leo is, uh, is bullying me. Can you tell his mom? That's the story as it stands right now. He owned up to it because I asked him, who are the kids? Who are all these kids that are walking up to you? And he couldn't come up with the story. You saw in the moment, right, the first experience of shame. I... I just did something bad. Right. And then he doubled down because I asked, hey, why did you lie? Why did you tell me that it was a bunch of kids when it was actually just one kid? Why didn't you just tell me the real story? And he completely shut down. This is reminding me of some of our leaders in, in the world today. Keep going. Right. Yes. <laughs> so he completely shut down and he doubled down and tripled down and just went all in on. I didn't. I don't. I just said it for no reason. There was no reason why I said that. And I said, Kai, you're a smart kid. You said it for a reason. And I went all in on getting him to own that. Mm -hmm. It took three hours. The kid was on wow. an essential timeout in his room for three hours. He didn't eat dinner with us. He didn't go to basketball practice. And when I came back in, I said, look, you're holding on to something in your head because you think that saying it will get you in trouble. But it's the other way around. You get done with this trouble the moment you own your truth. Wow. And it took a little work. But then he said, 
I knew that saying a bunch of kids told me would get him in more trouble. And, you know, the, the issue, I talked to him this morning about the issue of why are you even trying to get your brother in more trouble? Why is that the issue? Why is that something you want to do? But what was important for me is a conversation I had with him after, which was, look, you're, you were trying so hard to hold on to what you presented to me as the truth because you thought I wanted that version of you. I don't want that version of you. I want whatever is inside. I don't care what it is. I don't care how unlikely it seems to you that I will enjoy it, like it, and, and love you more for it. I promise you, at every moment in life, when you get caught lying, you have a split-second decision to make. Am I going to double down on this lie again, or am I going to just own up to it? And I don't have to tell you guys, if you do coaching, you deal with this with clients all the time. Um, my specialty in coaching is actually around people who've gone through a huge transformation of some sort. Something incredibly negative has happened in their life. They're near divorce. They just caught cheating. Uh, they're addicted to drugs and alcohol. They've had a death. Mm -hmm. Some big transformation has happened. And one of the main things that I find is they try to deal with it the way they believe the world would want them to deal with it, the way they think other people want them to show up. And my job is to pull out of them their truth, um, their most honest, most transparent version of self. And a lot of things fix themselves when you can do that. Let's, this seems like a good segue to go to the book. <clears throat> Forgive me. The, um, it seems unlikely that someone would make the jump from a life of, of addiction to working in addiction as a, a PhD psychologist and then jump into shame. Will you, will you connect those dots and tell us about the book, The Abstinence Myth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, uh, for jumping onto that. Um, so I was a meth addict. I, um, I was a drug dealer for about six, seven years out here in LA. Um, I sold drugs because I like doing a lot of them and they're expensive. <laughs> and I realized, you know, it's really kind of funny. It's, uh, it's the entrepreneur in me, I'll say. The first time I realized that if I buy more of the drugs, I catch a break. Yeah. And I could do my drugs for free. I literally, I borrowed seven, I'll never forget this. I borrowed 750 bucks from a friend of mine, which allowed me at the time to buy 50 ecstasy pills. That meant I did my ecstasy for free. Nice. Um, this is the days before ecstasy was called Molly or whatever you call it now. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter's name is Molly, by the way. We don't call it that. Go you, ahead. You guys you don't call it Molly. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. Um, and then that started my business. And what I realized is when I, when you have drugs, a lot of people want them. And so, you know, it's a seller's market. Um, and I became a really, a pretty successful drug dealer. I went from being a broke college student to making, you know, seven and then 10 and then 20 and $30,000 a month partying all the time. And at some point in the middle of that, somebody introduced me to meth. I was still in school and meth became a daily, and I mean all day habit for me because wow. it got to a point where I couldn't study. I couldn't stay awake. I couldn't pay attention to anything without the drug. And that continued for about four more years of me using every single day, all day. Wow. Um, I barely, I mean, I made it out of UCLA undergrad on a technicality. Uh, <laughs> I graduated a year late. They literally switched the course from a required course to a, an elective. And that allowed me to graduate. Um, and I lived in this kind of underbelly of LA for about four years. Now you can get an MBA for that. I'm sorry. Keep going. I know. <laughs> Seriously. Um, pharmaceuticals. So 
I, uh, and then I got arrested. I had a motorcycle accident. I was carrying about a half a pound of Coke on me and, uh, they found the cocaine when I was on the ground. I woke up in a hospital. I'm, I'm taking away some of the punch from my Ted talk. So I, excuse me guys, but, um, woke up in a hospital bed, you know, chained to the bed. And, um, eventually they came to my house. They found a lot more drugs, a SWAT team arrest on a Saturday morning. Okay. And I was in LA County jail facing $750,000. Bail and about 18 years in prison. And here's the thing. I wasn't aware of any shame at that time. Uh, wow. I was deeply in it, right? Um, people ask me, how did you make it through it? And I go, you know, honestly, when you're a drug dealer, it's part of the work hazard. It's like if you work in construction, you might break parts of your body because heavy things will fall on you. So you right. wear a hat. Um, when you become a drug dealer, you figure out that you're probably going to need to carry weapons and the police might come for you. So this was actually my fourth arrest. It's just my biggest one. Wow. Um, but it was in the middle of that. And I won't bore everybody through the details. I have an online workshop that talks about how I deal with addiction. And I tell the story. And then, but um, in the middle of that experience, I had this moment of having to own how terrible things had gotten, how responsible I am for that. And it came in a shame moment. I was ready to lie about another misstep. And a voice inside told me, just tell the truth. Tell them exactly what really happened. Nobody was happy about what really happened. But by owning it, I had the first inkling that when I own my own truth, I can create change in my life. Um, ended up going to rehab, did about a year in rehab. And then I did a year in jail. I, um, I got out of the 18 years, thank God. But I, I had to do a year in jail. Uh, that's not a fun time. I, I would not recommend anybody try to look into what that experience is like. Um, but when I got out, I had an experience that nobody, look, I'm an, I'm an upper middle class white Jewish kid, right? Like everything, the road was paved for me. Um, it could have been really easy and I made it hard on myself. And I recognized the privilege of my experience. When I got out of jail, I couldn't get a job. And talk about the introduction of shame. I came from this place where I was making 300K a year. I had four or five guys working for me. I could tell anybody to do anything whenever I wanted and they would do it to... I wouldn't get hired at the mall at a clothing store. I, I mean, nobody would call me back because there's this box. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I would have to check it every time. So for six to nine months, I looked for a job. My parents were paying my rent. That's where the privilege comes in. And I could, I had no way forward. And I understand people's internal um, hopelessness at being yeah. stuck because they feel like everything they're doing is not working and there are roadblocks everywhere. And then I found this school, Cal State Long Beach, that did not ask that question. Have you ever been convicted of a felony on their application? Excuse me. Oh. And so I... Um, we should point I out thought, that that's just a cold, given the topic. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll be more honest later, so you'll see that that's maybe a more relevant point to make than other people realize right now. But um, I got into school... And being in school was weird because I always I was always good at school, but I hated it. Mm -hmm. But now I had a bone. Like, you know, since Simon Sinek talk, start with why and, right, right, and right. the whole thing. I found my why. And my why to start out was really simple. I had to fix my life. If I did not fix my life, I was going to end up in prison for the rest of it. And I knew it. It was very clear to me. And, um, and so I went to school. I, I became a 4.0 student. I got scholarships that I didn't know I was supposed to even apply for. And then eventually you talk about the PhD. I was the first student. I don't know if there's another one since, but I was the first student out of that Cal State program to get into UCLA's number one rated uh, psychology PhD program. And it was wow. because I worked my ass off. Um, and I, I was like, 
I mean, I was so singularly focused and it proved to me again that you can come out of anything. You know, I was an ex-con, nine-time convicted felon, now a PhD student at UCLA. And I, it just sort of happened that I decided to study addiction. And, you know, people talk about research as really being me search. Um, mm-hmm. And it was for me. I wanted to understand what happened. You know, my dad was a physician. My mom was a human resource manager in a bank. My sister's now a physician. What the hell? Like, yeah. how do I end up a meth dealer in LA with a gun? Like, what happened? And so I studied the neuroscience and I studied treatment uh, um, approaches. I studied developmental psychology, genetics, all this stuff. Um, and when I was studying, I ended up having a conversation with an advisor telling him my story. And he said to me, don't tell that to anybody else. Wow. <laughs> Keep that inside. Um, and that was the first moment that I realized, oh, I'm, I have to pretend. For the rest of these people, I have to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. Like, there's no way, you know, the story I told up to now, there's no way to avoid the impact that's had on your life. Right. It will stay with me forever. It will be with me forever. It has changed the way I see the world. And so he said that to me. I took it to heart. And for two more years in my PhD program, didn't tell anybody about it, at least not publicly. And then two years later, I said, fuck it. And I started an online blog called All About Addiction, where I told my story and shared research insights from my own research and the things I was studying in in school. And that started me on this path. I didn't know the word at the time, but radical transparency of, you know what? I'm going to be the best version of myself at all times. And sometimes that version is going to suck. But I will learn from that and I will improve on that best version of me that I knew at that moment. And I only want people around me who will hold me accountable, who will call me on my bullshit when it's there, but also who appreciate and understand and value the experience that I bring to the, to the table instead of believing that I have to lie about it and pretend that it's not there. It's an amazing story. What do you want people to get now? It sounds like honesty and authenticity is really important to you. But um, the abstinence myth, why, what had you write that book? What do you want people to get out of that book? Yeah, so here I'm studying addiction. And my whole thing, uh, even when I started writing the first, so I started writing in 2008, up to 2010 when I graduated school, my focus was pretty singular on figuring out what the best way to treat addiction is. I wanted to fix the addiction problem in the world. Um, I don't like to think small. And... Then I was doing this research on what keeps people out of treatment. And I had the most bizarre realization. And that is when it comes to addiction in particular, 90% of people who struggle with addiction don't get help. Mm -hmm. And what that made me realize is it doesn't matter if I can find a better treatment for addiction. Nobody comes and gets help. I need to understand why people don't come get help. I did a whole study. It took about a year and a half, two years to finish the study. And we found four main factors. And there's a fifth one that gets found on the literature, cost and logistics. Those are obvious. Everybody knows them. Cost, rehab could be really expensive, right? Some of the top rehabs are $80,000, $90,000 a month. It's insane. Um, you can buy a house for that in, in most states. And so cost was a huge part. Logistics. In the current way that we treat addiction, you have to leave your family for 30, 60, 90 days Or essentially take on a part-time job and and do treatment locally for 20 hours a week or so. Cost and logistics were the two big ones. Shame was a third one. Yeah. And then another one was one that I didn't expect, which was abstinence. People said, I like using or drinking too much to quit. Mm -hmm. 
Now, here's the thing. Everybody was always really puzzled by that. They said, well, those people don't really want help. Right. And said, but the whole study was about people who were looking for help. The only way they found us was because they were looking for help. And so what these people were telling me is I want help, but I'm not ready to quit. And more than 50% of our participants said that, about 60, 70%. So, yeah, and, and we can get that from your own story. I mean, if we had talked to you when you were making 25, 35,000 a month, right? And getting yeah. and uh, having great time and feeling confident in your game, it, was there a part of you then that would have said, yeah, I'd kind of like to quit this lifestyle? Or hell no, you're. That's you're, actually a right. really good question. Um, I tried to quit meth on my own seven times. Wow. So you were motivated. There was some notion of like, this is not the life I want to live, really. Yeah, actually, about um, when I got into that accident, I was two weeks clean, which is the most I'd gotten off of meth. Um, in order to do that, I had to stop selling it. Oof. So I stopped selling it. Um, that's why that was the only cocaine in my pocket when I got caught. Um, but here's the thing. Then I ended up in the hospital because of the accident. And on the, my second day in the hospital, I called my assistant. Yet I was a, I was a drug dealer with an assistant. Um, well played. And very, my organizational skills yeah. <laughs> are lacking. So I had to bring me meth to the hospital. Wow. So I could use. So I had a meth pipe and meth brought into the hospital so I could use meth in the hospital, in, in my hospital bed. So two weeks was the longest I ever made it. I tried seven different times on my own and I just couldn't cut it more than a day or two at a time most of the time. So that's a really great question. I tried a lot. Um, and quitting was the only thing that I, I knew to help. So. Right. The point of the abstinence myth was this. Look, uh, I mentioned this and I'll now I'll say it because, you know, fuck shame. I am now, it was 2002 when I stopped using meth, the last time I relapsed. So that's 18 years now, 17 and a half years or so that I haven't used meth. Uh, I was completely sober for three years. I've been drinking socially since 2005. So that's mm -hmm. about 15 years that I've been drinking socially. So I'm not sober in the traditional sense of the word. Right. Um, I smoke weed three to five times a year mostly because my wife really wants me to and then she realizes how <laughs> horrible i am when i smoke weed <laughs> this was a terrible I, idea got it it's terrible i get paranoid i think everybody thinks i'm an idiot it's not a good <laughs> weed is not a good drug for me um but then we actually just released an episode on this in on our podcast ignited where we talked about we uh we do mdma about four five times a year um it was initially an intimacy and trauma um, tool mm -hmm. for my wife around sexual abuse and things like that in her past. And so it was something we still use a few times a year. But you can tell, right, that is not the typical story of an ex-meth addict. Right. Um, and so when it came time for me to write a book, I wanted to write a book telling what recovery can look like. Everybody knows the story of you go to rehab and you quit. Right. There are right. dozens of those books. And then you go back. But I wanted to what I wanted to say is, look, abstinence is not the only way to recover. Um, and there are two main points to make, and I will I will make them both because when I talk about the abstinence myth in the book, I talk about it in two ways. You, I don't believe you have to commit to quitting to start the process of change. That's number one. You can be drunk right now and know that you have to change and you can reach out for help and people should accept that outreach mm -hmm. and help you on the spot. Mm. Um, one of the most terrifying things for me in the addiction industry is that you essentially you have to quit and be willing to quit before you get help. Um, newsflash for anybody in the industry, the only reason people are relying so heavily on their drug of choice or their behavior of choice is because they're hurting 
and this drug or behavior is a medicine. Having somebody quit their medicine before they come get help is nonsensical in my opinion. Some people can do it. A lot of people can't. And the next piece is we have to stop measuring our recovery by abstinence. Currently, when you ask somebody, oh, you're in recovery, the next thing is how long do you have? How long have you been sober? And the only way people measure recovery right now is consecutive days abstinent. I think we have to throw that out the window or at least add a much more nuanced, complex way of measuring. So two things about abstinence. It's not necessary to start the process, and it's by no means the only way to measure success in recovery. Beautiful. So it's not, it's not that that's wrong. It's just that it's not the only way. In other words, the people who are 12-stepping their way through and the people who have gotten some value from rehab, good for them. But for the people who need more of a stepped approach or can't, can't face the idea of all at once sort of quitting cold turkey and going through what that is, you're saying there's another way. Am I picking up what you're laying down? That's great. A hundred percent. First of all, there is no wrong way. Mm. I think that might be part of what I'm putting down is if yoga and running ultra marathons gets you sober, you're all good. Um, If standing on your head for an hour a day and gargling salt water, like I don't care what the thing is. Mm -hmm. It's just that the standard that we've established is the first thing you have to be ready is to quit. By the way, even in 12 steps, the only only, uh, requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I'm like, what if they don't want to stop drinking? They just want to get better. Why won't you let them in? Mm -hmm. By the way, most people will let them in. So even... Even the argument that I'm making, it's not that it's a semantic argument, but it's a, it's a language argument. It's a language-based argument. We have to stop telling people you have to quit before you get help. I know therapists who won't see uh, people who struggle with alcohol until they have 30 days clean. I think that is insane. It's like a cancer. It's like an oncologist telling a patient, hey, come back when you don't have cancer. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, come to the gym when you've lost the weight. It right. reminds me of like I'm hearing just like meeting people where they're at, yeah, regardless yep. of where they are. The other thing that I, it reminded me of is we do the same thing with relationships and marriage. Somebody will go, I have a failed marriage. It went 15 years. And I'm like, that sounds like pretty incredible. You lasted no. 15 years, even yes. a year or two years, whatever. It's the the number that we put on these things yes is I, um, a made up standard totally I, the analogy that i make that makes everybody laugh all the time when i say it is imagine if you went if you have a depression and you go to your therapist and they say oh you're struggling with depression oh that's i i'm specialized in that we i would love to help you with it um when was the last time you were depressed and you're like well i'm actually going through depression right now and they go okay well <laughs> i totally get that um I just can't see you when you're experiencing <laughs> right. depression right now. Can you come back next week? And maybe then you won't be depressed and we can start working together. And then let's say they start working together and it goes well. The therapy really works. And for six months or nine months, they're kicking butt, right? They're showing up. They're they're getting out of bed in time. They're, they're being motivated. And then nine months in, they come in and they say, oh, you know, this weekend when I wasn't seeing you, this thing happened and I've I haven't gotten out of bed in three days. I barely made it here today. I'm depressed again. And the therapist goes, well, I'm sorry, I can't do this session with you. Um, I thought you were serious about this. I thought you really wanted to not be depressed anymore. And here you are showing up with depression again. It would, it would be, it sounds insane when I right. say that to people. Right. But that's being done to people in addiction all the time. Um, so I, look, I think we've sold about 8,000 copies of the book in our first year. Um, I get emails from people all the time, professionals and people who have struggled themselves. They say, finally, somebody describes my experience, right? If I get 30 days without alcohol and then I drink for a weekend, I'm not back at ground zero. 
I drank for three days out of 33 days. I'm still batting like 95% success. Why am I, why is everybody making me feel like a failure? And so my goal, as you mentioned with relationships or work or jobs, right? Any of these things, let's count people's successes. Let's make them feel like, um, like there's hope instead of making them feel like any small misstep means that they're hopeless and helpless. It's a really great point. Uh, we're about to take a break, just a quick um, a quick one, and we'll be back in two minutes. I want to continue when we come back and talk more about the fuck shame. Also, you've got a, a beautiful and very generous gifts for our listeners today. Uh, in the meantime, I want to send everyone to your website. There are two places you could go. Uh, one is Ignited, but it's spelled I-G-N-T-D, I-G-N-T-D. So it's all consonants with one I igntd.com. You can find out about the podcast, about the programs, about uh, everything, including a really cool fuck shame uh, bra uh, bracelet thing. You can also go to Adi Jaffe, that's A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E.com. And um, in both places, there's great uh, sort of cross information, and you can find out more about uh, Adi's life and story there, or you can go to Ignited and find out more about the programs. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, free stuff for you, our listeners, and uh, today our video watchers, as well as, um, what do you want to follow up on? What do you want to, you've been kind of quiet today. I mean, you know, I'm just letting you guys do your thing, but I, I mean, I'm fascinated by all of it. I don't know. We'll, I'll see where we go, but I'm, I feel like this has been, you've been enjoying your space. I've been letting you have it. You well, know, I'm trying to meet you where you're at. So you're getting credit for not working? I see what you no, did there. No, no, you know, it's like, I feel like it's my job to, like, I'm the co-host, right? Like, I, you know, this is your, and I'm supposed to step in and fill in. So if there's not an opportunity, I don't want to force it. Right. Like we'll I, talk. We'll talk more about your about your this job. This isn't about and your role. shame, or this is this is about me meeting you guys where you're at, and you guys are rolling along, and I'm like, this well, here's, is good. Here's my challenge to you. Uh, one of the things you were kind enough to share with me is that you're going through some uh, difficulty, and so I'm eager to hear your, you sure. share about some yeah. of that through this lens. Yeah. So we'll yeah. do that yeah, when totally. we come back. How about that? Yeah, it's Love not, it. and it's not meth. So, but but it's it's some good stuff. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> all right, things I hear, man. I nothing. There's nothing is beyond me. All right, we'll be back uh, right after this. Uh, take us away, Adam. Tired of presentations with no impact, no inspiration, and no traction? Do dull speakers have you and your team disengaged and distracted by smartphones? Christopher McAuliffe brings energy, insights, and two decades of experience delivered with punch, humor, and heart. Your team will leave energized, uplifted, and with a sense of purpose. Visit ChristopherMcAuliffe.com to bring some heat to your next speaking engagement. M-C-A-U-L-I-F-F-E. ChristopherMcAuliffe.com. Are you seeking to change your career to something that is both fulfilling and challenging? Do you want to help people reach their full potential and strive to achieve their dreams? Would you like to inspire those around you and help create a better world? If you're serious about a career change or just want to explore the craft of personal coaching, contact Accomplishment Coaching with locations across the country in Washington, D.C., Seattle, Chicago, New York City, and San Diego. Accomplishment Coaching is the leading institution in personal coaching. Our staff carefully monitors the entire program live during the training process and have met the strict 
standards of ICF International to achieve accreditation. Through a focus on quality instruction rather than endless modules of training, Accomplishment Coaching will guide you from your very first step all the way to becoming one of the finest coaches in the world. Visit AccomplishmentCoaching.com to learn more. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. Christopher McAuliffe is your source for the latest in the world of personal coaching. Whether it be speaking with such luminaries as Deepak Chopra or getting the newest techniques and innovation, The Coaching Show is always on the cutting edge of what's happening now. The Coaching Show is brought to you by Accomplishment Coaching, home of the world's finest coach training program. Here is Christopher McAuliffe, Master Certified Coach. <laughs> Welcome back. Continuing our conversation now. Uh, today's edition of The Coaching Show is all with uh, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Uh, he's a best-selling author of The Abstinence Myth, also a transformation and inspirational expert, mental health expert, and an expert on uh, uh, bringing us a new way to deal with addiction and an approach to addiction. You can find him on the web by going to Adi Jaffe, that's A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E, dot com or ignited spelled differently i-g-n-t-d dot com i-g-n-t-d dot com where you can find out all about the offerings the podcast that he does as well as their uh, annual event called glow that they just completed in 2019 um an extraordinary guy that you have uh, followed for a while. This is Alex Terranova, of uh, coach in his fifth year, just celebrating your fifth year of professional coaching. I, of course, in my 27th year of professional coaching. I think it's not just the fifth year that's cool. It's like the fifth year of my business. Right. Like, pe- businesses don't last five years. That's right. That's right. It's a big and, milestone. And I, I marked the other day, I was sharing with my coach, my biz. even though at the end of this year, I thought I blew it and like everything sucked and because I, I noticed a pattern. I sabotaged the end of every year. Mm. Um, but uh, 266% growth since year one. Nice job. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Congratulations. Not making up those numbers. Also, also an author of Fictional Authenticity, wherever fine books are available, as well as a host of his own podcast called The Dream Mason Podcast. You can find him on the web at thedreammason.com. Um, before we were talking, we were talking about... Uh, Dr. Jaffe's uh, history, and you were kind enough to share all of it, including the sh- shameful pieces like that. I wonder if we can get into more of a real world right now kind of thing, because you're dealing with some things, Alex, uh, that yeah. you were yeah, saying. Yeah. And and do you are you feeling shame? Are you are you experiencing some shame in life? It, I don't know if it's shame, but maybe we'll find out. So I'm um I'm you know, but um I'm in the 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 post holiday breakup, but a really intense breakup before Thanksgiving. Um, you broke up right before cuffing season. Yeah, and I and I thought it was you know when I I thought I was in the relationship that was like that was going to be it like we were we were mm. done that you know and I had done the work over 2019 to like be all in mm. like all in no matter what like we're gonna and some circumstances happened and I, I just be- believe that like the actually healthy thing to do for both of us was to actually walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had, it's really interesting to, to listen to somebody who to talked about addiction to like drugs, because that's never been a thing for me. But what I've always been addicted I to. I mean, you've used drugs. You yeah, just yes, never got yeah, addicted. Yeah, yeah, no, I had a, I mean, I had a Christmas day. I did mushrooms for a very 
a deep ontological experience. Like we, it was all about like self discovery. You should try so, it just for fun. But no, it was like it was it was fun. It was like, but to go take a step back, yes. But I've never had a like I can I can do drugs and I can just stop doing them. I can drink and stop doing. Yeah. It. It's never been a thing. But my I learned you know probably two years ago my addiction is women mm -hmm. uh, attention from women. It wasn't even about the sex. Like I wasn't a sex addict. It was the knowing that I could. The attention that I would get needing to get that. And um, so in the midst of this breakup, right, I'm I, there's a broken heart. I have my heart's broken for her also, which is new for me because I never had the compassion to even have that before. And uh, I don't know that I shared this with you. But, uh, one of the things that I was going through after this breakup is I started going on a bunch of dates. Like I just oh, started right like, oh, my God, I there was best way to get I over mean, one like, woman. Is wait. Yeah. six dates in a week, two in one day. Like, I mean, it was, and, and I was consciously though, not, I was not trying to sleep with anyone, not trying to even kiss. And like, I mean, it was literally like hyper dis addiction distraction. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at the end of the sixth one of that week, I got home and went, what the hell am I doing? Like I, I was clear. I was distracting myself and I, and I had the, I love what you were talking about. The, like, it doesn't have to be this all or nothing. Because I went, hey, you know, a little distraction is probably okay and healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, a date or two a week. But what I'm doing is this is actually making it worse. And I'm not mm -hmm. being and showing up as the person that I want to be, which then maybe caused me a little shame. Because I'm like, I'm not, who am I right now? This right. is not who I want to be. And you weren't really available. You weren't yeah. really, you're just there for like, hey, can you make me feel better for like an <laughs> evening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all of this is, like, really new because I don't think I've ever gone through a breakup and been so aware and so conscious yeah. of all of it. Um, and this is also the first time I'm sharing it. So this is, like, super. Yeah. Well, and, and I loved what you shared also because while you're dealing with this, then your ex is sort of doing, like, what many of us have been through, right, where it's first apologies and let's try this and then there's anger and then there's, you know, forget you and there's all this stuff. Um, Adi, you, you, uh, one of the offerings that you have on your Ignited site is Ignited Relationships. What are you yeah. hearing and what would you, what would you address here? Yeah, um, I alone see a lot of couples and my wife and I do a lot of couples work. So this is really, I, I love, I love having these conversations. If we were off air, I would ask what the thing that happened is. Cause that's the fruit that's kind of hanging there. And, and I don't know what it is, but we're not, I'm not going to ask you that on air. And you would have shared it if you wanted to share it. Um, when you told the story originally, um, there's some weight there and you, you talked about it from two sides, the feeling the pain over the breakup, but then, feeling the pain for her mm, um, yeah. and making the decision that it was best to walk away. Uh, so there are a couple of things that I, that I think are really important to understand here. You know, people talk about sex addiction or love addiction, and that's this area of, uh, of the addiction field that has been rife over the last decade. I mean, everybody really got to know it around like Tiger Woods. That's the guy that made it publicly okay to talk about this thing. Um, but I've, I've now worked, and I, it's something I struggle with for years, and it's something that um, I work with a lot of guys who do as well. It's primarily men that I see, and that's probably not a surprise. The women would probably not feel very comfortable coming to me for that kind of pro a problem. Um, but what I realize is, again, like with abstinence around drugs and alcohol, when people talk about this, what we're calling sex addiction, what we're calling love addiction is an intimacy disorder. Mm. It's a, a difficulty 
with making real close intimate and by that i mean vulnerable and open um relationships and holding those over time because there's a lot of discomfort that comes from having real intimacy yeah right and what i hear and it's really thank you for sharing this alex because it's something that a lot of guys deal with whether they know it or not and whether they do go on actual dates or they watch porn or they go on online dates you know, whatever you know, kind of online chat with women, whatever the thing is that they do, it's not only a distraction in the broad sense, but it's specifically a tool to avoid discomfort, right? If you find yourself thinking about this girl, it causes pain. Um, there's great research from a woman, uh, a researcher at UCLA, Naomi Eisenberg, who's married to another amazing neuroscientist at UCLA. And they together did a study that looked at pain perception in the brain. Hmm. And the areas of the brain that perceive physical pain and the areas of the brain that perceive emotional pain are one and the same. So when you talk about having a broken heart, she broke my heart, it, you know, it hurts. You mean it literally. It is literally perceived by the pain, by the brain as a pain point. And so just like we try to distract ourselves or find ways to reduce pain in general life. I broke my leg, I twisted my ankle, whatever that is. What we're doing is we're trying to apply a tourniquet. We're trying to apply a Band-Aid or some you know, anti-inflammatory to the pain that you're experiencing whenever you think of this. Here's what I love. You're a coach. So you have the awareness to sit there and watch your pattern and go, what am I doing? I don't go on six dates a week. What's happening? And then look one layer deeper and go, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid, I'm trying yeah. to cover up. The problem as we deal with it, and that's why we're in the coaching business to some extent, is most people don't have that, it's called metacognition, right? That that's higher so level boring. of cognition about their own thinking. Most people don't spend a lot of time introspecting about what they're doing. They just do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of guys do this and it works. You know, when you were on the date, Maybe it was uncomfortable. Maybe it was weird, but you're probably not thinking as much about the breakup. Right. So it worked to achieve its job. I always tell people, look, you know, you mentioned, I don't know if this is shame or not. If any shame came about, it was really in that moment where you started looking at your own behavior and whatever happened to break up the relationship. So there's some, there's obviously some pain for you internally about what it is that broke this relationship up. And, and I think that's something that would be worth exploring for you. And then the next step, especially once you explore, what is it like, I'll, I'll just, I'll use an example. It's always better not to talk in generality. So I cheated on my wife. Now I cheated on her once when we were dating and that was an actual sexual relationship, like a three month long relationship with a woman on the side. Wow. Uh, she almost found out. So I, you know, I, it's not really manning up because I had to wait for her to almost find out. Um, but I told her the truth. She dumped me on the spot. We were broken up for almost a year. I got her back. In my head, I knew now physical cheating is not okay. It will end this relationship. So I started essentially like sexting or inappropriately texting with an ex-sexual partner. Never physical contact, but, um, but still not okay. Whenever my wife and I would fight, I would escape to this other woman and get attention from her. The third layer, we talk about this in one of our episodes, so I'm not revealing anything that she's never had me talk about publicly, was throughout the entire relationship from when we started dating all the way till 
she found this out. Um, I would have online, essentially online sex relationships with women. Um, sometimes it would be one or two and it would be like an ongoing relationship. And sometimes it would be through like, I don't know if you remember Ashley Madison and some of those websites that were literally there for cheating. Um, she found that out and we almost got divorced. She was pregnant with our first. Wow. The reason I bring those specific examples is, trust me, we are now nine years after that last discovery. So the online sex stuff. Trust me, there are still moments where in this relationship, because we are radically transparent and intimate, she gets uncomfortable and doesn't trust me because of some of these old things that happen. My job when that happens is to learn how to get to trust faster, not to defend myself and not to try to deflect the discomfort that I'm experiencing, but rather to address it. And whatever happened in your relationship and whoever is listening right now, a lot of you have gone through breakups and relationships that didn't work out. There's a huge power that comes from accountability and owning your part in it. It's so easy to blame other people for what they did wrong. It's so easy to do it. What role did I play? What, how did I not let my partner in? How did I decide that there were areas of my life in my example, for instance, that it was better that she didn't know about, you know, what, what role did I play in those? And so whatever that was for you, Alex, if you can start doing that internal work and put your focus on addressing that. So either in your next relationship or you're talking to a guy who's now been married to a woman for 10 years that he cheated on essentially three times. Um, so miracles and weird things happen. Um, you don't know what's going to happen with this relationship. You don't know what's going to happen with future relationships. Our job, especially as coaches, but as humans, is to work on making ourselves the best that we can be. So what was it that led to that breakup that you can be accountable for? Put the focus on addressing that. And my guess is that when you really address that, by the sixth date, you're already breaking that for the week, right? Like you're not being the best version of yourself by hunting um, for women on apps, you know, and I do a lot, I do a lot of talks for people More on masculinity and the new masculinity. Yeah. Um, it's such a weird conversation to have because I grew up in an age, you know, mad men kind of the, was the fifties man was the epitome. Right. But what was the fifties man? He had the family life and then he had the women on the side. He drank during lunch, right. you know, he, he, he banged his waitress as, and he banged his secretary. Like there's a lot of inner work that we have to do to say, maybe they were okay with that in the fifties. My guess is they weren't okay with it. And even their wives were not okay with it. It's just, that was the facade everybody put on. So for you, Alex, turn the lens inward, stop looking for something on the outside. That's going to fix what's going on inside. Identify what the areas that led to this breakup led to you not being complete in this relationship were and when you turn the attention inward all this external stuff will stop being a distraction such great such a great note and our time has flown by are you okay to leave it there yeah i was gonna say though i, I love that because the thing that i've been doing the practice that i've been taking on was thinking about all the reasons why i'm grateful mm. for her and the relationship right i don't have like, I don't want to say a bad thing about her. I think she's an incredible person. And like, I'm, and I, and it's funny, I've been doing a version of what you say, like, yeah. um, trying to go, how did I, how did, what's my hundred percent responsibility in the way this went? 
and like just looking on my side of the street. And then if I'm thinking about her, this happened the other day because I was having these negative thoughts. Just that they were just firing in my head, right? I couldn't. And then I went, wait a minute. This is making me thinking about her negatively is only making me feel worse. Right. So That's how can I think of how can I actually practice thinking about her in a positive way and a grateful way? So I started I was actually in a yoga class and I started in the yoga class thinking about all the good things, all the things I admire, all the things that uh, I all the ways I grew, all the things I'm grateful for. Uh, I love what you said um, in the uh, in like the trust faster, because I think that could be internal too. Like, how do I practice? What did I do where I wasn't trusting myself in the relationship? How can I trust myself more uh, in the process? Um, yeah. But that's great. Thanks. Man, yeah, such, absolutely. Love. Such a beautiful piece. And there's so much uh, richness there, including the intimacy disorder. I want to, um, our time has flown by, and I want to thank you so much for being with us, Adi Jaffe. Uh, will you let us know about your generosity here? You're giving away a free book? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think we're going to do some sort of a, a giveaway. I leave it up to you on, okay. on how to do that. Whatever pick, serves your audience best. Pick a number between um, one and ten. Me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You want me to tell it to you now? Yes, please. My kids do magic tricks all the time, so I, this is a very confusing <laughs> moment for me. Uh, let's go with seven. Great. I should have said not seven. I'm kidding. Uh, if you are the seventh person to write an email to producer at thecoachingshow.com, producer at thecoachingshow.com, mention the free book, which is The Abstinence Myth, and you will win a, a, a free copy of The Abstinence Myth. Um, I also want to let you know to go to Ignited, that's I-G-N-T-D, I-G-N-T-D.com, and find out about the recovery free workshop that's there, as well as the Ignited Hero program. Anything else we should uh, let people know about? Dr. Jeffy? No, no, that's it. Again, thank you so much for having me on. I love that we're having these conversations and, and expanding people's ideas of what's possible. I think that's what coaching is all about. It really is. One, and I'm, I'm sorry happy to, to be part of it. Thank you. I, I, I do want to give you our, our last couple of minutes here. One of the things, though, that I think that people may be listening to this need to hear you address is for many coaches, they're trained uh, from the beginning to not work with people who are active in an addiction or they're trained yep. to wait, like, like you said, you know, you have to be 365 days, zero, you know, using, or you have to be yep. six months down the road. What's your advice if you have any for coaches about mm -hmm. working with people active in an addiction? You know, I gotta say, so I do a lot of, um, professionals training in the field. Yeah. That's one of the things I've done most of probably in the last decade. And this is really opening me up to wanting to do um, trainings and online workshops and maybe in-person workshops for coaches, because love I do think coaches are the new coming wave of practitioners in the field. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's the first thing you're going to have to do. The first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to eliminate the notions you have in your own head of what an alcoholic is, what an addict is and what is possible for them in the future. Mm. What I tell all the professionals that I work with, and there's something called the Pygmalion effect. I don't really have time to go into it, but if you look in my TED talk, I talk about it quite a bit. If you look at the person who's drinking too much and think to yourself, oh, they're an alcoholic, I can't help them, you're right. Because your beliefs about their potential outcome and their hopelessness and helplessness will transfer through micro movements and through very imprecise. Uh, changes in the way you treat them. And so the first step that we have to do, and that's why I tell my story, look, I'm an ex-meth addict, ex-con, who's now a PhD student. I've been on, I don't know how many 
live, um, you know, daytime TV shows. I've written a book. Mm-hmm. I've got a successful business. I've got this family, you know, as Alex mentioned that I live, if I would stop telling the story, everybody would look at me as just a normal person. Right. Exactly. The reason I keep telling the story is I'm an ex drug addict, uh, convict. And I want to tell people that story so that they expand their understanding of what is possible. Your job as a coach is to look at the person in front of you and believe that there's an, an open blank slate that you can help create with them. And so that's honestly the first step that I would tell people who are practicing is go back and, and read up on people who struggle with drugs and alcohol. Just because somebody struggles with drugs and alcohol right now means absolutely nothing about what is possible for them in their future. Beautiful. And you withholding help because um, you don't believe so and you, you don't believe that they can get better is part of the hurdles, is part of what's keeping them back. So hopefully I'll have some news for you guys in the near future and we'll start doing some training specifically for coaches on how to incorporate this language and this thinking into the work. We really need that. We need uh, alternatives to the current approaches. I thank you very much for your time here today. And um, man, yes. thanks for the work that you're doing in the world. All right, that is Adi Jaffe. You can uh, find out more about him and his work by going to Ignited at IGNTD.com or Adi Jaffe, that's spelled A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E.com. This is Alex Terranova. You can find him by going to the thedreammason.com. And I'm Christopher McAuliffe, ChristopherMcAuliffe.com, or right here on The Coaching Show, where each and every week we bring you people out on the cutting edge of coaching or coaching-related things. I thank you, dear listener, for listening, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>